Welcome to the program. It's the From the Booth podcast. My name is Cody Clark. His name is Evan Eichen, and we are here with another week on the pod and another jam-packed week of sports conversation. Evan, we've got Major League Baseball playoffs going on, college football going on, uh, NFL. We have uh, uh, we have some some running news that we're going to talk about at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. I know everyone's hanging on every word that we'll discuss uh a new record in the marathon, but uh, are you enjoying these uh, these fall Major League Baseball games, college football games, NFL games? I am absolutely enjoying it. It's the best time of the year where it's mid-October, Halloween's coming up, basketball's coming up, football, you started getting to the meat of the NFL season, the meat of the college football season. This is one of the better times of the year uh, to when it comes to sports watching. And Major League Baseball last night has delivered for us. The Washington Nationals punched their ticket to the World Series. They swept St. Louis. They won 7-4 to last night. That game, Evan, was 7 to nothing after one inning of play. And the Nationals have, have really been a great story this year. They started the year 19-31. and Their manager, uh, Dave Martinez, was probably on the hot seat. They... I was I was looking back at some of the some of the stats and the way that their schedule played out early on. On May 23rd, the Mets swept the Nats. They took four games consecutively from Washington. Washington Evan was on pace to lose a hundred games, and then they just kind of flipped the switch, and now here they are in the World Series. They are. It, it kind of the Scott Van Pelt brought this up on like his one big thing about how long these seasons are. And he talked about the St. Louis Blues and how on January 3rd of this year, St. Louis was the worst team in the entire NHL. And then they flipped it around and won a Stanley Cup. Is that it's important to remember these are long seasons and there are a lot of twists and turns and anything can happen when there's 162 games. Remember, there is at one point where the New York Mets were on fire after the All-Star break when it seemed like for the first half of the year, like they were arguably a bigger disaster than the Nationals were, and you had the whole Mickey Calloway might have had a fight with a reporter. Remember that story? Yeah, absolutely. And then then All-Star break happens, Mets are on fire. It, It just seemed like everything we thought we knew about this season you know, you kind of had to throw it out the window. I mean, we knew that the Dodgers were going to be good. We knew that the Astros were going to be good. I think most people expected Los Angeles, the Angels to have a bounce back year, but they just let go of their manager and then they just hired Joe Madden. It's just important to remember that it's a long season and a lot can happen when there's 162 games, but I feel great for Ryan Zimmerman. He has been there since the first season in Washington. He's been there for a lot of lean years, and now here he is finally getting to go to the World Series. I I feel great for that guy. Absolutely. That's a a great point. He's been a part of all 15 seasons that they've been in our nation's capital. You've had Max Scherzer and Anibal Sanchez flirting with no-nos. Steven Strasburg has been an absolute stud in the postseason. Uh, This postseason by itself, he's 3-0 3-0 and with a 1.64 earned run average. I think he's 4-2 and 
uh, overall in the postseason with like 12 and a half strikeouts per nine innings or 13 strikeouts per nine innings or something absurd like that. So they're getting fantastic starting pitching and they are getting some of the unlikely heroes in Howie Kendrick uh, as the NLCS MVP and just some of the guys that they've brought in. They've shored up the bullpen a little bit. They have Strasburg, Scherzer, Anibal Sanchez, Patrick Corbin, who came over from Arizona. He pitched for the Diamondbacks the past couple of years. The Nationals brought him in. So just a really formidable roster and a team that's really uh, playing well together and on fire. And Evan, in the American League, the Astros beat the Yankees 4-1 to last night as they take a 2-1 to lead in the American League Championship Series. And I thought that was a really, really big game for the Astros because there's some rain in the forecast, and earlier today they postponed Game 4, which was supposed to be tonight. They've postponed that until tomorrow. So that could mean that these two teams, if the series goes seven, they're going to play four consecutive days because the series has to be done at a certain point for then the teams moving on to the World Series. With the Astros up two to one, Evan, do you like the bullpen of the Yankees more or the starting pitchers, the Garrett Coles, the Verlanders, the Grankies of the Astros more as the rest of this series plays out? If I had to pick between the two, I would take the starting pitchers for Houston because these guys won a World Series two years ago in 2017, so they know what they're doing. They know how to get there. And this is a Yankees team that is still relatively still relatively young. Aaron Judge, uh, Giancarlo Stanton, even though he spent all those years in Miami, never got to the postseason, or if he did, I don't remember it. Uh, what's, what's the other guy's name? Gleiber, Gleiber Torres. Yeah. Gleiber Torres. He's a, he's a star. He's a, he's a young guy. So this is a young Yankees team that I don't think is quite there yet. They're the, they're the classic team that they're a year away from being dangerous. It just seems like it's a bit early for them. So if I had to pick between Houston and New York, I'm going to have to take Houston. So game four will be tomorrow. And then that series will continue to play out. Uh, they could be playing uh, four days in a row if that series goes seven. So a couple of things to watch in Major League Baseball. But the Washington Nationals punch their ticket to the World Series. They have six days off now, while Houston and and the Yankees try to figure out how to navigate the weather up there as the series is in New York. All right, Evan, let's switch to college football. The big, big game that happened over the weekend was LSU beating Florida 42-28. to This was a really, really good football game. Uh, Joe Burrow, only three incompletions against a very formidable Florida defense. He was 21 of 24, almost 300 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, 13 carries, a buck 34, a couple touchdowns. They continue to run the ball well. And, Evan, they jumped to number two in the uh, AP Top 25 poll. Did the voters get that one right? I think they did because LSU is the only team in the top ten in, in the top ten that has beaten two top ten teams. They went into Austin when Texas was a top ten team, knocked them off, and then at home they beat Florida, which was a top – they're the only team in the country that can claim, hey, we've beaten two top ten teams, we've proven we belong – and that's why I think that the voters got it right is because if you look at just the resume of we 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 play this is who we played against 
We went into Austin when they were a top 10 team. We knocked them off. Florida came off a big win against Auburn. You can make the argument that it was a bit of an emotional letdown, but that was still a game late in the fourth quarter until Trask threw a back-breaking interception and then LSU put the game away. I think LSU has a legitimate claim to the number two spot if you look at just who they've played. On the flip side, Clemson went down to number three, and the argument against Clemson is, well, the ACC is lousy, and who have they beaten? I mean, if we're just going by that, I think that the voters got it right. What do you think? Uh, I mean, if we're going by the schedules six games into the season, LSU should be the number one team in the country. Alabama has played Texas A&M, Ole Miss, Southern Miss, uh, South Carolina, Duke, and New Mexico State. Are you kidding me? Like, LSU, from a schedule standpoint, they should be ranked at the number one team in the country. Now, do I think they're the best team in the country? That will play out over the course of the season. And that kind of goes with the same thing with Clemson. They're ranked number three. It's one of those things where if you are ranking these teams and you're looking at who they've played and how the games have played out, Clemson should be much further down the list because they haven't played anybody and they're not going to play anybody the rest of the year. So you get into that whole, in my opinion, Clemson is a top three, top two team in the country. But their schedule so far does not prove that. So where, so how do you kind of balance that? Because I think they're one of the best couple teams in the country, but they haven't really played anybody. LSU, we think they're pretty good. And they've beaten, and they've had a couple of nice wins. So I think LSU should be number one in the poll, just for the simple fact, as you pointed out, the couple of wins that they have, especially only being, you know, we're what six, seven games into the season. So I think LSU should be number one. It's fine that they're number two. It, it doesn't really, you know, that's that's perfectly fine. I, I think they're, I think they can use that as motivation. I'm sure they think they should be ranked number one. Uh, with the schedule that they've played. But it kind of goes back, and I'm curious to get your thoughts here, Evan, you know, how how you kind of balance that because Clemson is probably not going to play a team that's going to finish in the top 25 over the course of their entire schedule. So they'll probably run their schedule. Then they will most likely win the ACC. So they will be ACC champs, but they haven't really beaten anybody. But we all probably think that they're one of the best couple teams of the country. What say you on that? I, I understand what you're, the point you're trying to make, but it's not Clemson's fault that the ACC as a whole is lousy. As it stands right now, the only team on the schedule that was ranked at one point was Wake Forest, and they just lost 62-59 to to the Louisville Cardinals, who they are who Clemson gets on Saturday. So I understand that if you're just going by what you've done this season, Clemson doesn't deserve to be a number three, but the rankings are, they're comprised 75% what you did last year slash expectations, 25% what you're doing. So Clemson already got the huge built-in advantage of being national champions and the expectations of, well, they've been this, they've been, a top team for this number of years. So we're just going to slot them there. If the rankings started at zero and everybody had, if we, if it's like the NFL where they don't care about what you did last year, it's like, okay, everybody's zero and zero week one. Would you even put Clemson in the top seven based on schedule? 
I mean, I, I don't think you could. They, it, I believe they opened the season with a win at Georgia Tech. Uh, then it was a win against Texas A&M, Syracuse. Uh, they had a cupcake in there. Who was it? I don't remember who it was. And then it, I think it was North Carolina. UNC and, Charlotte. Yeah, UNC Charlotte, then North Carolina, then Florida State. So, no, I mean, if you're looking at the schedule they've played and a little bit of their performance, they've kind of been a little bit up and down. They would be a top 10 team, but if you were just basing it on that in terms of who they played, no, the schedule is not strong enough to have them at number three. But, again, it goes back to, like I said, I think when you watch Clemson and we know that the weapons that they have and when they're firing, they are one of the best couple of teams in the country – with the athletes that they have. So you kind of, you go with that. They're national champions. They have all these weapons to kind of override the fact that they've been a little up and down and they haven't really played anybody. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting balancing point there. Alabama's number one, LSU, number two, Clemson, number three, Ohio state, number four, Oklahoma, number five, and Evan, a team that you and I have been talking about this week Wisconsin at number six, are they the the best team that nobody is talking about? I feel like they are. They are. Okay, so here are some stats for you. Wisconsin has played six games. In four of those games, Cody, they have allowed zero points. Grand total zero. of zero. They've, have, they've allowed 29 points in six games, which is the fewest anyone has allowed in six games since the 1994 Florida State Seminoles, when they allowed 24 points in six games. Jonathan Taylor leads the country in rushing touchdowns to 14. He's third in yards. He's third in rushing yards behind J.K. Dobbins and Chubba Howard of Oklahoma State. Wisconsin has proven, like at least from a defensive standpoint, they have four shutouts. Can anyone else claim they have four shutouts? I don't think so. They're, al- they're allowing less than five points a game. How is this team not in the top five? Well, I mean, I, I think you're going up against, and this is, you know, Evan, it's a real shame we don't get an eight-team playoff because I tell you what, this year, if the season ended right now, your your field would be Bama, LSU, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, Penn State, and Notre Dame. That would be a hell of an eight-team playoff. And you've got Florida, Georgia right there, Auburn and Oregon both in the top 12. I mean, this thing is is wide open here and going into uh, week eight. So this is, I mean, man, I wish we had a, a playoff because this would be fantastic. But, you know, I really like Wisconsin. I really like them defensively. Their signature win is at home against Michigan. They won that game 35-14. to They destroyed Michigan in the first half. It was 28 to nothing. The only other decent win they have is Michigan State, the team that they just played, and they beat them 38-0. I think the defense is for real, but we're going to learn a lot on the 26th of October when they go to Ohio State. We are going to learn a lot when they host Iowa on November 9th. Those are a couple huge games, and they go to Minnesota, who's ranked 20th in the country at the end of November. So a few big games left on the schedule for Wisconsin that they really need to uh, win out and run the table, I think, to prove that they belong because I think there's still a lot of people that are skeptical 
that they have that one signature win, but some of the other some of the other teams that they've played have not been um, have not been up to par, if you will. I think that Ohio State game is going to be massive for Wisconsin. But you talked about that defense. They are the best scoring defense in the country. They're giving up less than five points a game. They are second in the country. They've scored four defensive touchdowns, and they've only allowed opponents, Evan, to convert on third downs at a 15% clip. 13 opponent third down conversions on 83 attempts. That's, that's These numbers, I was diving into their defensive numbers. It's insane what they're doing on the defensive side of the football. And then they have arguably the best running back in the country, Jonathan Taylor. But when you play against... Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Jack Crone is only thrown for eight touchdowns. He's barely thrown for over a thousand yards in six games. So, you know, Jonathan Taylor is going to get the football and they can't stop him. He has 14 rushing touchdowns four receiving touch. He has half of the team's receiving touchdowns. Like on offense, they have arguably the best running back in the country. They have the best defense in the country that doesn't stay on the field because you can't convert third downs against them. And then, well, and that's a good, that's a good point. Evan, don't mean to cut you off, but, and on offense, they convert over 50% of their third downs. So while it's not a super dynamic offensive attack, you know, when we see a lot of these games and we see the formula to beat a lot of the top teams, what happens? You get a team that can run the football you get a team that doesn't turn the ball over they don't get penalized less than uh, I think it's less than 30 penalty yards a game and they convert and keep they keep their guys on the field on offense and they keep you off the field and so keep your offense off the field so I think they have a very interesting balance because you pointed out some of the offense they don't have this massive offense but they have the ingredients to that we see a lot of these teams are able to pull off in a one-off type of upset environment. They have all those ingredients as a regular part of their football team. That's why I'm really looking forward to them going to Ohio State and then that Iowa game, Minnesota game. They're going to have a chance to prove here late in the season that uh, that they belong. Well, Wisconsin traditionally has, ha- has hung their hat on on good running backs. Here are some of the running backs that have come through Wisconsin. Heisman Trophy winner Ron Dane, Melvin Gordon, James White, Monte Ball, and now Jonathan Taylor, who could you could make the argument should be one of maybe the first running back taken in the draft if he decides to come out. But, Cody, Justin Fields and Ohio State have shown that they can score at will against almost anybody they want. If if you had to pick between Justin Fields or this Wisconsin defense, who do you think wins? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I lean toward Justin Fields in Ohio State. I, I think that the ability of Fields to hurt you with his arms and his legs, this guy is a, a good pocket passer. He's not... He's not not just a run-first guy. He's a guy that can hurt you with his arm. I I don't think Wisconsin has seen – I mean, I know Wisconsin hasn't seen a quarterback like him that they're going to face in a few weeks. I would side with Ohio State. 
I, I think I would pick Fields over that defense. But I, I do believe that that Wisconsin defense can give them problems and hold them down to what we are accustomed of seeing this year, accustomed to seeing this year on the offensive side of the football for Ohio State. So I think Wisconsin can neutralize some of that, but I do like – I don't know. I just I don't think I could pick against Justin Fields having watched him play this year. Okay, I think the better question would be Wisconsin has allowed 29 points all year. Does Ohio State score 29 against Wisconsin? They're averaging about 50 points a game. I can see it being 28 to something, maybe 28 to 28 to 20. Maybe it's maybe it's 20, you know, 23 and Ohio State gets a late touchdown to get to 30. Their Ohio State's offense is so good. They have so many weapons. That Wisconsin defense is really, really good, but that Ohio State offense can wear you out. So that game's in a couple of weeks on the 26th of October. Really, or I guess only 10 days away now. Really looking forward to seeing that matchup in a in 10 days because I think that's the question that a lot of people have right now with Wisconsin is, are they – Legitimate and hey, Wisconsin comes out and they take care of business. They beat Ohio State, or even you know they give them a great game. They're able to hold them down defensively. You've got Wisconsin is at number six in the country. I mean, you're gonna have a lot of people go, "Wow, okay, they are they are legit. They belong, and we'll have to we'll have to consider keeping them right there or moving them up." So, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, especially for that game in 10 days. But we've got some some ranked battles this weekend. Uh, Michigan is at Penn State. Arizona State is at Utah. Oregon is at Washington. Uh, you have Florida at South Carolina, not a ranked game, but a game with Florida still ranked at number nine, South Carolina coming off the upset of Georgia. Uh, what's the game that you're kind of uh, tuning into this weekend as something to watch here in the eighth week of the college football season? I think it would have to be out of the entire slate. Maybe to see if Georgia, uh, this might be a, a bit of a weird choice, but does Georgia bounce back against Kentucky? Because they lost in heartbreaking fashion with probably the most automatic kicker in college with Rodrigo Blankenship missing two kicks against South Carolina and losing. So I want to see, does Georgia come out just sort of pissed off and beat Kentucky 55 to nothing? Or is this a bit of a letdown game for them where they just kind of feel discouraged and they're still a little bit hungover maybe isn't the right term, but there's still a little bit of like a hanging cloud of we should have won that game. And then they're starting to look past Kentucky. Does this make any sense to you? Yeah, I understand that. Absolutely. You're coming off a very emotional loss. Are you able to bounce back? No one is arguing the fact that Georgia should beat South Carolina. Uh, so the fact that they were not able to do that puts a big damper on their SEC title hopes. It hurts them in terms of the playoff. I was thinking about it, you know, with Florida getting that big Auburn win, with Georgia then losing. You've definitely got those two if they can run the table. Uh, you've definitely got those two on a on a crash collision course uh, to play for a spot in the 
Um, it, they'll be battling for, or excuse me, they'll be battling for a spot in the uh, SEC championship. So they've Georgia has to take care of business. They can ill afford to fall a second time. Does South Car- Does South Carolina have that magic again? They have to play Florida. They welcome Florida. Uh, into Columbia in a noon kickoff game. So that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, I'll be dialing up Michigan-Penn State. Penn State with a very nice win. They're seventh in the country. Very nice win last week against Iowa. A little bit ugly, 17-12. to That was at Iowa, though. A lot of those games are, are slugfest type of games. But Penn State has looked good, and a team that wasn't getting a ton of love uh, early on in the season, the schedule as has been the case for a lot of teams has 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 been pretty weak for Penn State but a nice win uh in Iowa against the Hawkeyes 17 to 12 then they have Michigan this weekend the uh, a 7:30 evening game at Penn State so I'm going to be watching that one I think that that's a, a very interesting game for Penn State with them at number 7 you know they're going to try and move up and kind of crack and knock on the door at that you know top five, uh, top four top five spots, so a lot of interesting games coming up. Evan is going to be dialing in to see if Rodrigo Blankenship, Jake Fromm, and company can uh, can bounce back from that South Carolina loss. Uh, I think Arizona State Utah is an interesting game. Number seventeen Arizona State at Utah, so a lot of good college football still on tap. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, Evan, we're really getting into the meat of this. Uh, college football schedule and you know we're definitely going to see over the next few weeks this is where teams you know start to separate themselves and start to make their claims uh, as they kind of position themselves for the end of the year this is the time of the year where after when, when we get into conference play we start to understand okay who's three and oh because they're good or horse three and oh because they had a lousy out of conference schedule because there are times where you know, in the in the in the bowl game era, it was okay. We're gonna play this directional school, this directional school, and a small in-state <laughs> right. school. We'll go three and zero, and then we can go three and six in conference. We'll get a bowl game, and things are gonna be fine. But in the playoff era, you can't really do that anymore. Yeah, not as much. So, I, so it creates a lot more weight to to conference schedule and to conference play and to the big teams like an Alabama or an LSU of, Hey, look, you can't schedule Tennessee Martin the week before Auburn anymore. Like you need to actually go out and play somebody out of conference. Cause for the first 20 something years of my life, you could just kind of tune out of September football because it was a lot of games where it was like, okay, so Georgia is playing Texas Southern and they're 27 point favorites. There's no point in watching this game. But now, if you're a top team fighting for a playoff spot, you have to play somebody in September, which makes it a lot more interesting. And that's part of why the meat of the schedule, when we get into conference play and we find out who's three and O for that reason, or who's three and O because they're still in the bowl game. Ah, we'll go three and six. We'll, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll get a bowl game. Yeah. I think there is, there are a lot of good football teams in college football this year. 
you know, like I said earlier, it's a shame we don't have a playoff because I think it would be very, very interesting, very, very fun to watch because the top part of the college football uh, rankings and the college football programs are really, really strong this year. And we've seen some some really good football games and expect to continue to see some really good football games. Uh, Shifting, keeping with the football focus, but shifting to the National Football League, the Dallas Cowboys fell to the offensively anemic Jets 24-22. Evan, it's three consecutive losses for the Cowboys. Are you panicking with what's going on in Dallas? No, I'm not because the – the division kind of allows Cowboys fans to not panic because we know Washington's not going to be a threat. We know the giants aren't going to be a threat and Philadelphia just got blown out by Kirk cousins in Minnesota. So if you're a Cowboys fan and you look at the rest of that division, you just kind of feel like, Hey, we're three and three. They're three and three. We're tied for first. We're going to be fine. So I think just from a divisional standpoint, like if Philadelphia was five and one and they were three and three, I would say it's panic time. But because we're still not quite sure if Philadelphia is good, especially with a secondary that has been ravaged by injuries, I feel fine if I'm a Cowboys fan. I don't feel great, but I feel I feel fine. It's not full on panic, but. There's definitely some panic for me. Look, this team destroyed three cupcakes to start the year. It was the Giants, uh, Washington, Miami. They beat them at a historic pace. The last three games, they were shut down by New Orleans. New Orleans won that game 12-10. to They were beat at home by the Packers in a game that they looked like they were just running around with their head cut off. The final score, I think, 34-24, to not indicative of how that game went. Dallas, you know, got offense going when they just started because they had to throw the ball late and they put up a few points. And then they lost to the Jets 24-22, to failing on the two-point conversion. Look, Ezekiel Elliott doesn't look like himself. Both starting tackles are out injured. You had Amari Cooper hurt his quad, I believe, so he was out for basically the entire Jets game. I think he played just a couple of snaps at the beginning of the game. Their wide receivers, Evan, have dropped 6% of balls thrown their way by Dak Prescott in the last three games, which is an awful, awful statistic. You mentioned, and that's the good part for the Cowboys, is the division. They have already got divisional wins over Washington and New York, which is a very good thing. We know Washington, not going to be a good football team. New York with Daniel Jones. They're going to be okay, but again, not going to be threatening. I don't think for the playoffs we can both agree to that. Philadelphia lost to Minnesota this past week, and now they are in Dallas this weekend. So Philly kind of comes limping into the game against the Cowboys, but they've they've just looked choppy on offense. They have a ton of injuries right now. It's a long season. You know, with the talent that they have, when they kind of get back on track, they get people healthy they're going to be fine but with Philadelphia this week you know it's another game against a tough opponent and the Cowboys these last few games against tougher opponents have not looked good Evan Jason Garrett has been much maligned as the head coach of the Cowboys if let's say this slide continues 
Could he be coaching for his job in a couple of weeks? Jerry Jones has, has said that's not going to happen. But do you think he could be pressured into it if this continues? I mean, he kind of is in a way because he's on the last year of his contract. And every time Jerry Jones is asked about it, he's like, no, nah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. It's it's, it's not that big. But did you see the, the clip on the sidelines where Jason Garrett was trying to, like, high-five his players and, like, four guys walked past him? <laughs> yeah, they, they just all, said they, no thanks, dude. They're like, they're like they, all just, they all just walked right past him. I don't... I don't think I don't that know. bodes well, I'll tell you that. No, probably not. But he's in the last year of his contract. Most people feel like he's the head coach because there's a perception that Jerry Jones is the one who's really in charge. And that the one and the the times that Jerry Jones has had guys that challenge him have ended in bitter public feuds. See Jimmy Johnson and Bill Parcells. So there's a perception that he kept this job because Jason Garrett is just going to shake his head, shake his head and go, yes, sir, Mr. Jones, you know everything and you're always right, which is kind of the narrative around Dallas because everybody that I've heard says, well, Jason Garrett might be the head coach in name only, but everybody knows Jerry's really the one that runs the show. And if you got like a Sean McVay type in Dallas, like maybe Kellen Moore becomes the next Sean McVay. Is Jerry Jones really going to want that guy? I, I I don't know, but I guess I'm just kind of going by public perception. But he kind of has to be coaching for his job because he's in the last year of his contract and Jones has given at best non-committal answers about his future. So I don't know how else I can read into it. This is the early part of this season, and, and you make a lot of great points there. The early part of the season was where the cow- the Cowboys really needed to get out to a good start because you've got this stretch here coming up that's pretty tough. They host the Eagles, they go to the Giants, they host the Vikings, and then it's uh, in Detroit against the Lions, in New England against the Patriots, and at home against the Buffalo Bills, and those are the games running to Thanksgiving. This is a team that needs to get get it together. Now, I don't, I don't think that as you mentioned earlier, and when we look at the division, you're not going to have to win 13 games to win this division. Nine, 10 wins might do it. 11 wins, maybe. So I think they're okay in that regard, but I think there is a sense of panic in Dallas because against much better competition, against more formidable teams, see New Orleans, Green Bay, and New Orleans and Green Bay because the Jets aren't there. Dallas has played four four teams that we think are among the league's probably bottom six or eight, and they're 3-1 and one in those games, but they're 0-2 against teams that we think will probably make the playoffs in terms of the Saints and the Packers. So I think the game against the Eagles this weekend is going to go a very long way in telling us where Dallas is at right now. Dallas and Philadelphia both coming in at three and three on the season. Evan, the 49ers have been pretty impressive, I'd say. They're out to a five and0 start. Uh, that's their first five and0 start since Joe Montana in 1990. I believe it's the fourth five and0 start for them in franchise history, but the first one since 1990. and they absolutely handled the Rams. It was 20 to seven. a very unimpressive performance by the Rams, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But 
this defense did it again. They held uh, Jared Goff to 78 yards. Uh, Todd Gurley was out for the Rams, but they only rushed for 109 yards. Another big stage. Uh, they proved it against the Browns. I think they showed it against a team that we think is a pretty good team in the L.A. Rams. These 49ers seem to be for real. Over the last two weeks, they played Baker Mayfield and Jared Goff. Guess how many combined passing yards Mayfield and Goff had against the 49ers defense? Uh, let me say, uh, don't tell me. Hold on. I'm trying to remember last week's number. I don't. Let's say, let's say, let's say 300 combined yards. No, no, that's uh, too high. 178. Holy cow. I thought Baker had Baker more than Mayf- that. Baker Mayfield had 100 yards passing. Jared Goff had 78. Wow. Do you know do you know how hard it is in the NFL to hold anybody under that? Yeah, especially in today's game. That defense, they're first and second in everything behind New England. New England and New England and uh San Francisco are the top 2 in every defensive category, but the 49ers have a rough stretch, Cody. They play 3 games in 11 days starting Sunday. Sunday the 20th, they're in Washington. The 27th, they're home against Carolina. And then they have the Thursday night Halloween game in Arizona. That's that's going to be a rough stretch for the 49ers to get through. Do you think they can push it and win all three of those games? Uh, I do. I think the Carolina game would be the one that you kind of circle. Look, they beat the Bucks, the Bengals, the Steelers, Cleveland, and the Rams. Cleveland and the Rams the last two week, the last two weeks, excuse me, good wins for San Francisco. Tampa, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, those teams haven't proved formidable, although Pittsburgh looked much better and bounced back with a nice win over the Chargers uh, on uh, on Sunday night. I think that Carolina game is the one you circle. Yeah, three games in 11 days is, is very rough. But against Washington, Carolina, and Arizona before that, uh, battle against Seattle. I think it's a Week 10 showdown against Seattle after they play Washington, Carolina, and the fighting Kyler Murrays. I think they can get through that stretch. Would not be surprised if they fall in that Carolina game. Uh, Carolina, with the ability to run the football, also can play pretty good defense, not that uh, the, the pace that the Rams are, are giving up. But when you have a defense like that, you're going to be pretty much in every game, and you mentioned it. Uh, first or second in pretty much everything uh, to the New England Patriots. Uh, Best second in scoring defense, first in pass defense, only allowing 12.8 points per game. This team's only allowing four yards of play, which is is pretty remarkable. This this defense has set them up uh, and provided plenty of cushion for Jimmy Garoppolo. Evan, who... Has not been really super impressive from a stats performance perspective, but the guy's 13 and two as a starter. He just gets the job done. When you have a defense like that, you don't need Patrick Mahomes. You need a guy who can just manage uh, manage what's going on. Uh, they can run the football. For a lot of people doubting Jimmy Garoppolo and can he stay healthy for an entire season. You can't really argue with the thirteen and two number as a starter, can you? You can't argue. You can't argue with that. I mean, thirteen. He's thirteen and two as a starter. 
and like you've mentioned, they don't need him to be Patrick Mahomes. Like you don't need Jimmy Garoppolo to throw the ball 44 times for 375 yards. He's got a three-headed monster at running back with really cast-offs. Raheem Mostert was a journeyman return guy before he wound up before he wound up in San Francisco. Matt Breida was an undrafted free agent from Georgia Southern, and Tevin Coleman was always sort of the second fiddle in Atlanta behind Devontae Freeman. Yeah, type of a gadget guy. They've been able to cobble together one of the best rushing offenses in the league without like an Adrian Peterson 2012 type where you know he's going to get the ball 28, 29 times. And I think that's what's more impressive with Kyle Shanahan and this offense is that they they drafted George Kittle out of Iowa, which is a steal. They dra- they had Marquise Goodwin, who was known as like a speed guy for the Bills, didn't really catch a lot of passes. He's one of their top receivers. They've been able to do it without outside of George Kittle, without really top-tier skill position guys. And I know like the phrase offensive genius gets thrown a lot gets thrown around a lot, but I think it, it fits with Kyle Shanahan. Oh, no question about that. I mean, you could argue that with what they are working with on offense, no disrespect to any of those players, but as you mentioned, not in the upper echelon in terms of how we view their talent. I think Kyle Shanahan you'd have to put up there as a one seed because what he's doing with this offense has been fantastic. And we 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 both just talked about it. They don't need to be this super dynamic, ridiculous, come out and throw it 50 times a game. Jimmy Garoppolo was 24 of 34, uh, 243 yards, no touchdowns, one interception. So one mistake on the pick, but he is able to pick up first downs. He's got a nice target in Kittle. They've got a couple of guys that can go deep. They do just enough on offense, and with their ability to run the ball, that complements what they do through the air so well that they don't really need to open it up and they're able to allow their defense to work. The one place they'll have to be better is in the red zone. I think it was a I think it was 41% efficiency in terms of touchdowns last year. It's up to 46% this year, but still not a great number. So they have to be a little better in the red zone. But this team I think has shown the formula that they have is definitely going to be something that's sustainable but a very tough stretch coming up, as Evan alluded to, Washington, Carolina, Arizona, before they play Seattle. I don't see Washington and Arizona putting up as much of a fight. I do with Carolina, so we'll see how that pans out. But there's a very real chance that this 49ers team could be 8-0 going into that matchup against the Seattle Seahawks. So uh, a nice surprise this season in the 49ers. I don't think at this point you would have thought that they would be one of the teams that are undefeated in the NFL, one of two teams, them and the New England Patriots. So 49ers continue to impress. Uh, they're out to a 5-0 and start, as we mentioned earlier. They're first since uh, Joe Montana and the year 1990. And they're doing it without arguably their best offensive lineman. Joe Staley's been injured for a few games. Well, and I was going to point that out, Evan. That's, a, that's great that and you Mike- bring that up. Mike McGlinchey's out. He didn't practice. They, so there's a chance he might not play against Washington. While we sit here and go, the Cowboys have people out. A bunch of other teams have guys out. The 49ers have their, both of their tackles are out injured, and their fullback is out injured. 
and they're still putting up these impressive wins. So San Francisco, while we say, you know, we kind of make excuses and all, you know, the Cowboys are hurt. You know, they've got a couple of their best offensive linemen out. San Francisco does too, except they keep winning. So they continue to uh, be able to uh, win games. So that I thought that was interesting. You know, we kind of look around the league and, oh, this person's hurt and, oh, you know, they'll be fine when they get guys back. When San Francisco gets both their, their starting tackles back and their fullback back healthy, look out. You know, they're going to be, you know, even more formidable than they are right now. So they've got everything firing on all cylinders. The team that they beat was the Rams, who are on the losing end of that game, as we mentioned. Evan, the other team that started 3-0 and and now has lost three straight. You weren't as concerned about the Cowboys where are you gauging that level with this Rams team having lost three in a row? If I were to, I don't want to go to the one to 10. I kind of want to go to like the meter where it goes from like yellow to orange to slightly darker orange to red. We're kind of in like the medium orange there. <laughs> like, because the 49ers, as we just talked about, are five and zero. Oh. the team below them, the Seattle Seahawks with, probable MVP Russell Wilson at this point are five and one. They're two games back in the win column behind both of those teams. And I don't see how they can catch up because Russell Wilson, if you have not noticed, Cody has not thrown an interception this season. Oh, he's been remarkable. 17 touchdowns, no interceptions. And you can make the argument that, well, yeah, they haven't really played each other all that much. So maybe the Rams steal a couple of divisional games late in the year. But just from a how things are sitting on this day, October 16th, right now, my concern is in like the bottom part of the slightly darker orange. If I'm if I'm an L.A. Rams fan, but. I, I don't know how this gets better from an offensive standpoint, considering that Todd Gurley missed the last game. Jared Goff has looked not that great in the last couple of games. He had two more fumbles over the weekend. He lost one of them. This is a team that coming into the year, we just kind of assumed they were going to be good. I, I think maybe we're, we should be asking ourselves some questions about the LA Rams and whether or not we should still believe in, believe in them. I'm not jumping off the bandwagon yet, but let's just say I've moved a lot closer to the door. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, offensively, there's definitely a lot of concern because you don't have a fully healthy Todd Gurley. One of, if not, you could argue the best running back in the league that we've seen when he was healthy. You don't have him, uh, at a, operating at an all-pro level. And along the offensive line, they've had issues. And they had two offensive linemen that they had to replace because they lost in free agency, one of them being Roger Saffold, I believe, at the guard position. So they, were, they lost two offensive linemen, so they've had to replace uh, a couple guys there. You haven't had as efficient of a Todd Gurley and so the running game has been inconsistent, which is going to affect Jared Goff in the passing game because you have a lot of weapons, but when you don't have that threat out of the backfield with the play-action pass and those sorts of things on the uh, on the offensive side, 
it's going to make things a lot more difficult for you because teams can kind of key up on your receiving threats, Cooper Cup, Brandon Cooks, Robert Woods. You can kind of key up on those guys and take some of that away and force them to run the football, something that they could not do only just over 100 yards against the 49ers. And San Francisco did that. They held Jared Goff to 78 yards. And this is a team that struggled offensively. And Evan, this is a team that struggled defensively as well. And so they went out and made a couple of trades. Uh, They traded uh, Marcus Peters, the Pro Bowl cornerback, to Baltimore uh, for linebacker Kenny Young and a 2020 pick. And then they bring in uh, Jalen Ramsey as well. So do you like the do you like the moves that they made to kind of try and shake things up on on defense? They also made a trade with the Cleveland Browns for offensive lineman Austin Corbett as well. So they've made three trades. Uh, I think uh, the LA has a great opportunity to right the ship because their next two games, Cody, are Atlanta and Cincy, and those two teams are a combined one and eleven. Uh, but the Marcus Peters trade, as it happened, we were texting each other back and forth like, oh, this is kind of weird. Interesting, because they just put a keep to leave on injured uh, on the injured list on IR. Yeah, like when, when it came across the ticker, we were texting back and forth like, okay, this is a bit weird, and the timing doesn't make a lot of sense. And then like an hour and a half later, we understood, okay, now I get why they're doing it. But I think that the Rams paid too high of a price for Jalen Ramsey. And, here, and I'm going to explain why. In the short term, it's going to be fine because you get Jalen Ramsey. So if you're going to view things in the terms of who won the trade, even though that's not really how trades work, how who won right now is the L.A. Rams because they got a player. However, in the long term, this could be bad because... The Rams have traded away first-round picks every year from 2017 to 2022. Jared Goff was the last first-round pick the Rams have made. And the Rams have made their bones by bringing in other high, high-paid high guys. Like last year, they brought in Ndamukong Sue on a big one-year deal. They just paid Aaron Donald. They paid Todd Gurley. And the homegrown guys that had been grown, like Alex Ogletree got shipped out, you wonder if trading too much of this draft capital might be, and feel free to call me nuts if you think this is an inappropriate parallel, but the Rams are in danger of becoming the Brooklyn Nets of the NFL. Okay. Because remember when the Brooklyn Nets made that huge trade with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and they traded away all their draft picks, but who cares? Cause we got KG and Pierce and we're going to win right now. And then it didn't work. And, they were kneecapped for about five years and the great and the good young players that Boston has Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown got there because Brooklyn traded away five years worth of draft picks because they thought they were going to win right then and there. So let's play this out and let's just assume that the Rams window is closed and they don't get back to a Super Bowl. That last year was a lot closer to 2015 Carolina than how the Rams are going to be right now. You've traded away your first-round draft picks until 2022. Yeah, the next, like, five years of drafts. The the only homegrown star in the Sean McVay era that's put up any sort of impact is Cooper Cup. 
other than that, they're, you know, they had guys like Joseph Noteboom and John Johnson. They're, they're nice players, but they're not going to a Pro Bowl anytime soon. So you are betting on that guy you're taking 59th to go to a Pro Bowl when so much of your salary cap is already tethered to guys like Jared Goff, Todd Gurley, Aaron Donald, that if they don't have those first-round picks, because when you have an expensive team, the most important thing is cheap, cost-controlled labor. And if and if your draft picks, and if your first-round draft picks, you don't have them, so you're counting on that second and third-round pick to be as good as the first-round pick. And I guess that's why my explanation of why they could become the Brooklyn Nets of the NFL of the NFL was like, Oh, well, we're just going to get all these guys. We're going to throw everything into this three-year window. And if it doesn't work out, they could be left there holding the bag and this could be bad. Yeah, no, you make a lot of good points there. And one of the reasons, and one of the things you just talked about cost controlled players versus, you know, having to pay out the big salaries. That's kind of why I was intrigued by these moves because, okay, you send out Marcus Peters he was in the last year, his, the final year, fifth year of his rookie deal. So a guy that you're probably not going to bring back because of where you're at with salary. They bring back a very young linebacker, Kenny Young. He's only 23. He's under team control for another couple of years uh, coming over from the Baltimore Ravens. But then you add a guy in Jalen Ramsey. Look, you've paid Jared Goff, Todd Gurley, Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey wants to get paid. So are you bringing in Jalen Ramsey as a gun for hire and then you're going to try and turn around and flip him for a first-round pick and replenish that at the— Well, that's stupid. After the you year? Just, because, you just traded away two first-round picks. Well, right. So you're, you're going to bring him in for a year and a half, he's going to bounce, and you're going to get nothing? Well, but I'm just trying to understand this from a— They can't—I I don't know how they can afford to— pay Ramsey what he's going to demand they will so let's say Ramsey gets a a massive contract you'll have Ramsey Donald Gurley and Goff you'll have all your team's money tied up in four players and one of those players is a running back with arthritis in his knees are you kidding me like I just don't I, I don't under like I like the move for them right now because they're saying hey we're not as potent on offense. We have to get better defensively. This defensive line is still very strong. And with Aaron Donald, they can they can do a lot of stuff up front. So they're saying, hey, let's bring in Ramsey. Let's get a little bit stronger uh, playing man-to-man coverage against wide receivers because Marcus Peters has not been good in man-to-man coverage this year. And Ramsey is one of, if not the best cover corners in the league. So you're saying, hey, we're going to shut down the opposing team's number one. We're going to get better on defense, and that's going to help us out offensively. But when you project this forward, you already have all that money tied up in Jared Goff, who has struggled. Todd Gurley got the big deal. He has arthritis in his knees. Aaron Donald is highly paid. He deservedly highly paid and continued to do what he does. But the Jalen Ramsey is a guy that is set to be paid as well. So I just am very intrigued to see how LA handles this because they could potentially have all this money tied up in four players. And that means you really, 
as you pointed out, you really have to hit home runs, really, with your other draft picks when you trade away all your number ones. As you mentioned, you're needing that guy at, you know, at 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 forty something, at sixty something, at eighty something to really hit. So that that's just where I scratch my head is you're bringing in another guy who you gave up a lot for, which would lend me to believe that you're going to sign him. But I I just struggle with how you can sign him to the contract that he's going to want, tie up all that money in those four guys, when potentially you could be looking at, I mean, I think it gets easier for the Rams now. They, the, the, the next couple of games, I think this makes them better. But what if they go, what if they go, seven and nine or nine and seven. I mean, this is a massive payroll tied up in a handful of guys for a team that could just be okay at the end of the year. And that's why I said they might be the Brooklyn Nets of the NFL. Because Brooklyn, when Mikhail Prokhorov bought the team, it was remember, he said he doesn't care about money. I'm just gonna pay I'm just gonna throw all <laughs> the money at everybody. And then it, and then it didn't work. He just he just woke up one day, decided he didn't want to pay the luxury tax, got rid of everybody, and the Brooklyn Nets were basically a salary landfill for about five years, where the only guys on that team were guys on bloated contracts that nobody wanted, or it was like a random D-League guy where you look up and you're like, who the hell is he? And you had to Google him while you're watching the game because you'd never heard of him. And there's a chance that if the Rams thing goes poorly because they traded those two first round picks on the assumption that, well, of course in 2021, we're still going to be 12 and four and playing for the NFC title game. But Cody, four years ago, the Denver Broncos had probably the greatest defense ever. And the Carolina Panthers went 15 and one. If you ask me at the end of that Super Bowl, it was, of course, they're going to be great. Of course, this is going to go on. Well, it didn't. Not quite. Oklahoma City with the Oklahoma City to continue my NBA parallels. The <laughs> Oklahoma City Thunder at one point had Harden, Westbrook, and Kevin Durant on the team at the same time. Got to one NBA Finals, and everybody was like, "Yep, shut it down." They are the team of the decade, team of the West. They never got back there again, and now that and they've traded away, and all three of them are gone. Like, there's a chance that this could be a disaster in 2021, 2022, if. Jared Goff is a lot closer to what he looked in the last three weeks than he did in the first year and change. I think this is a massive gamble and one that they paid way too much for because Jalen Ramsey's not dumb. He knows that you just traded two first round picks for him. He knows he has all the leverage. What are you going to do? I'm going to play here for what? 17 games. Then you're going to let me go and you're going to get nothing for trading two first round picks. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Okay. Let's look 2020 salary cap numbers. Jared Goff, thirty-six million. Aaron Donald, twenty-five million. Todd Gurley, seventeen point two. Brandon Cooks, sixteen point eight. So those are your top four. If you keep Jalen Ramsey, he's going to be at that number as well. So you're already looking at almost. You'll be looking at a hundred million dollars for those five guys, and so you're left with the rest of the salary cap to try and figure out how in the hell you put together a winning football team and the dead cap hits for those guys are outrageous. Brandon cooks at 21 million, Todd Gurley at 25, Donald at 41 golf at 51 
Ramsey would be in that 20-something million. These are guys that are that they've committed money to long-term and are part of their long-term picture. But you could see some major overhaul with the Rams because you're going to have to pay most of your salary cap money to five guys. Jalen Ramsey is a great addition for this team on the football field, but they're really going to have to do some gymnastics to make things work on the books to be able to continue to put together a winning team with the Rams, especially now that San Francisco has burst onto the team or burst onto the scene, excuse me, as a team to be reckoned with. They just beat the Rams head to head. So they prove that, you know, hey, we're here, we belong. And it's going to be very intriguing to watch the Rams as this continues to play out because a lot of people watching Sean McVay, Jared Goff, and what this Rams team can do, having started 3-0, and now losing three straight. That's part of the up and down of the NFL season, but a lot to prove for the Rams over the next few weeks of the season, especially in that division with the 49ers, with the Seahawks as well. And it's not like in the NBA where you have things like mid-level exception and bird rights and salary cap. You get a salary cap, and guess what? It's hard. (laughs) The the second you go over that cap, you got to get back under. You're not allowed to go a penny over the cap. And you know what happens every year in the lull between after the Super Bowl to the first day of free agency? A wave of really talented guys get cut because we got to save money. So if all of your salary cap is tethered to those five guys, you're going to have to tell a Johnny Johnson or a Tyler Higbee or a Gerald Everett, sorry, we got to let you go. We can't afford you. And that's, and that's what makes this so maddening for me because they're, they're basically doing a Toronto Raptors when they traded for Kyle Lowry. It was we're going to throw everything at this one year and screw what happens after that. And you can make the argument that, yeah, it worked out for Toronto, but when we get into our NBA preview, is there a universe in the world where the Toronto Raptors repeat as champions? Probably not. Probably not, no. I mean, they would have to do cap-level gymnastics that Simone Biles would look at and go, damn, even I can't do that. <laughs> like, so this could be a nightmare for, for the Rams in three four years. Next year, Ramsey, $13 million. He's unrestricted in 2021, but he's on record as saying in Jacksonville he wanted to get that new deal done. So uh, going to be very interesting to watch. Another interesting matchup we saw, Deshaun Watson outdueled Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Mahomes, 273 yards, three touchdowns, a pick. Deshaun Watson looked a little out of sync as well, 280 yards, uh, a touchdown, two interceptions, but did have two rushing touchdowns. Evan, we thought this Kansas City Chiefs defense would be better as they fell 31 to 24 to the Houston Texans who have been up and down or looked up and down in terms of performance this season. The Kansas City defense might be worse. They gave up uh, uh, hold on, let me go to the box score because it was an absurd number for first downs. Carlos Hyde 26 carries, 116 yards, one touchdown. Kansas City the third worst rushing defense in the league. Look, we love Patrick Mahomes. We know they can put up a ton of points. That's beside the point. They have got to be able to control the line of scrimmage in terms of running the football for themselves a little bit. And they allowed turn- 35 they allowed 35 first downs. Houston had 20 passing first downs. Kansas City as a team 
had 20 first downs. And they ran the ball for, I think it was 56 yards total as a team. And from a rushing defense perspective, this is a team that now they got gashed by the Titans and Carlos Hyde. They got gashed by the Colts on the ground. But these teams are holding on to the football, keeping it away from that Kansas City offense, which makes them much more stop and start and makes things much harder for Patrick Mahomes, who we've seen hobbled with a couple of different times getting hit uh, around the legs and the ankle area. And we've seen him get up hobbled. He's not gonna. He's not going to be able to sustain this. They've got to figure out a way to right the ship a little bit there because you have this great, great shiny toy in Patrick Mahomes, who is maybe the most prolific arm talent in the league. But it's not going to matter if he only gets the ball 18, 20 minutes a game. And when you're giving up 35 first downs, that tells me one thing: your defense cannot get off the field, and when your defense can't get off the field, that means that when you're off, that means that it's going to take longer for them to get to catch their breath. I mean, Cody, you were you were a distance runner, right? Yes, you were a distance runner. And if after a distance, okay, imagine if you decided that your coach came up to you and said, "Hey, we need you to be a sprinter," and then after the sprinter, we need you to do the thirty-two hundred. You you would need a while to get yourself back under you, right? Oh, I you'd be peeling me off the track. Exactly, uh, with probably with like a spatula or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. But if you but if your offense is only on the field for twenty minutes, that means that your defense is on there for long grinding drives. And if you're and if we're going this by quarter, that means that on average per quarter. They were on the field for about five minutes a quarter. Yeah, I mean, that's not enough. You can't ask them to put up 35 you, points you, you, in, you in five that. minutes a quarter. I mean, you just can't. That's not that's not something realistic of really anybody, and, and that's why I say they're, they've got to be able to run the ball a little bit better, and they've got to be able to try and control that line of scrimmage. Look, they brought in Frank Clark. They thought that was going to help. They're struggling on defense right now, and that's something that they have got to turn around because they've got to help out Patrick Mahomes in that offense. Because Patrick Mahomes cannot do it by himself. He can't. But they're getting Ty- They got Tyreek Hill back, which that will help. Helps. They have a Thursday night game coming up against the Denver Broncos, who appear to have figured it out. A little bit. Yeah, they're playing much much better the last couple of games. And they're not going to have Eric Fisher, their offensive lineman. He's out. It's it's not it's not good for Kansas City, but they still have a uh, one game lead over the Raiders in the AFC West. One game lead over the Raiders. Who would have thought that at this point Kansas City would have just a one game lead over the Oakland Raiders? I think Kansas City has struggled more defensively than I, than I than we think they would, and and, and the Oakland Raiders have perhaps overperformed uh, to a standard that is much higher than we thought that they would. Evan, the last thing we'll kind of touch on here, the officiating in the Detroit loss against Green Bay, Packers won 23-22. I am a guy that's of the belief that you cannot kick a bunch of field goals and hope to beat Aaron Rodgers. So on that point, I, I you know, Detroit has to take care of business in the red zone better they have to be able to find a way to score touchdowns because you're not going to beat 
Aaron Rodgers kicking field goals. That said, the missed uh, the two hands to the face calls. The NFL admitted that one of them was incorrect. The pass interference call where a defensive player is going for an interception because he has that right to do so, I thought was not a very good call. You mentioned, and we kind of talked about before we came on the show, the glut of holding penalties that have occurred, and people were very, very upset with the officiating on that Monday night game as the Lions fell to the Packers. There have been over 1,600, was it accepted penalties or called penalties? I want to say called. Yeah, I think called. There have been over 1,600 called penalties, which is the most in about 20 years. You know, they have a hard enough job as it is with uh, with with replays and the you know 4K and the cameras and I I think that we as fans sort of need to temper our expectations a little bit that we that they can't get every single call right. I believe the phrase is "perfect is the enemy of good." That in trying to get every single thing right, we've created new arguments like uh, I think it was two years ago when they were having the rash of like the runner was down at the half yard line and everybody was like, well, that, 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 that's been a touchdown my whole <laughs> yeah. life. I don't know what a touchdown is anymore. And then there was the catch rule and everybody's like, I don't know what a catch is anymore. And now they have a rule where you can challenge PI, which everybody thought was going to be a nightmare. It is just in the opposite direction to the point where offensive pass interference has spiked and defense, and I think that they have like a less than 20% success rate when they challenge pass interference. So now people are like, well, now I don't know what, what pass interference is anymore. So I think it's just one of those things where we just kind of need to settle down and just accept that human el- human error is inevitable. And we just need to accept that you can't get every single detail right. Because history has shown when you try to do that, you create unintended consequences and then you try to fix those unintended consequences, which creates even more unintended. It's 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 just a cycle. I guess the thesis of my rant is just accept that human error is part of the game. Stuff happens and move on. No, and and you're exactly right about that. Look, I'm a referee apologist. I they do a really difficult job, and they do it at an extremely high level. If you go back and look. You know, you there's a lot of plays every Sunday where you go back and look and be like, wow, okay, yeah, like a touchdown stands or something like that where a call stands and you go, oh, wow, yeah, the referee saw that in real time and made the correct call. The vast majority of that happens. But with the, with the pass interference stuff, what drives me nuts is that this was very clearly an overreaction to one play in the NFC Championship game between the Saints and the Rams, there's no question that this the review of pass interference came out of that missed call, where Nicole Roby Coleman, uh, com- you know, committed that pass interference call on the on the sideline in New Orleans. That call spurned the pass interference instant replay thing where now you can challenge pass interference and review it and that kind of stuff. Now I have no problem with, 
you siding with the call on the field. Like, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, you want to go with how it was called. But when you go to a review and you have video review to try and get the call right, I think we can all agree that the reason you have review is because you want to get it right. If you go to said review and you can very clearly see that a receiver, a defensive back, whichever way it goes, hinders another person from catching the ball. You know, I know we've got all this language about, you know, significant contact or whatever the hell it is. If you can go to the replay and see that there was contact that impeded the person from catching the ball, we have that technology to say, okay, we need to overturn that. That was pass interference. Except for they are not overturning pass interference calls to so much so now to where coaches aren't even throwing a challenge flag on pass interference because they have overturned only like 13% of them. Coaches are saying, look, it's not worth me throwing away a timeout here because they're probably not going to overturn it. We have the technology to get it right. We've put it in. Why? I just don't understand why we don't use it then because you can go to a ton of these replays. Evan, you can, you're at home. You're watching a game. You're sitting on your couch. You can see the defensive back. We can all see the guy grabs, you know, maybe maybe pulls down on his on the receiver's arms to where he can't catch the ball. Or maybe it was an offensive player who, you know, got a, got a push off of the defensive player, maybe pulled one of their arms back so they couldn't make an interception. We can all see it on our couch. I just don't understand why then those calls don't get overturned. And I know you've got the semantics of the whole significant and whatever else wording they have in the rule book, but we have the technology to get it right. You put in the, I mean, at this point, they shouldn't have even put in the rule. And we know it was an overreaction, but if you're not going to overturn any of them, then why have the rule? Because it was all anybody was talking about for two or three days. To the point where there was a story about how New Orleans, how the city of New Orleans was going to sue the NFL <laughs> yeah, over awesome. the game. They were going to sue the game. They were going to sue the league over the NFL. Then there was a story about how, well, Roger Goodell's got to say something. Roger Goodell didn't say anything, so everybody got mad at him for not saying anything. It, it was just like every they just it was escalated at at every level. And I think the the wording is for particularly egregious or clear and obvious evidence, which I don't understand what clear and obvious. Oh, I don't means. I don't either because you can sit, you can be sitting at on your couch watching a football game. Everyone in the country can go, you know what? That looks pretty clear and obvious that the defensive player pulls down both of the receiver's arms and inhibits him from making the catch. It it should be maybe 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 I don't know what the words clear and obvious mean, but it sure looks like it on a lot of the calls. They're one, coaches are one in twenty in their last twenty one challenges. Yeah, they're not wasting the time out now. They're not even bothering. I don't understand how this wasn't going to be a disaster. Well, and and. We always we always overreact in the postseason. So like we overreacted to the to that play because it potentially changed the outcome of the game. So we overreacted and we 
put in the review. We don't we, we always underreact to the regular season. So all this stuff, you know, this is it continues to be a conversation. They put it in so that they can I in the playoffs, if something happens like that again, they will overturn it. And that's the reason they that they put this in for one or two plays potentially in the postseason. That's the that's the reason they put it in. So they're gonna go through the regular season. You're gonna see, you know, nothing really happen. And it just continues to be this dialogue of why in the world did we do this? And then a couple things will happen in the postseason and they're going to go opposite of the regular season, in my opinion, and a couple things will happen where they will overturn it and they'll say, hey, we got it right. Yes, at that point we'll have gotten it right, but we'll have gotten it wrong for 16 weeks before that. You know what Like nobody talks about about that Rams-Saints-NFC championship game? The Saints got the ball in overtime. <laughs> exactly. And turned it over. Nobody talks about that. Everybody talks about, well, they missed that call. Well, the Saints got the ball again in overtime and and didn't and didn't do anything with it. No, you're exactly you're exactly right. And that, you know, it, it's we have this conversation and we talk about the reviews and the pass interference and all those sorts of things. Look, at the end of the day, it I believe that it usually evens out. The refs, you know, like I said, the refs get it right a lot of times. I just get hung up on the fact that we you put in the rule and you have the technology to get it right and sometimes it just doesn't feel like they're super concerned with getting it right in terms of we can all see that this is clear and obvious. I know you want to go with the call on the field, but let, you know, this is clear and obvious. Let's overturn it. It's one of those things where I think you're going to see it happen a couple of times in the postseason, like I said, and you'll have people just like continuing to opine, saying, "Why did we even? Why did we just not institute it for the postseason then, and not in the regular season? We'll just have it there." It's going to be interesting to watch, and I think it's something that you pointed out. You made a good point about the backlash that the NFL had in just, you know, that week or two after that happened. This is now a weekly conversation where people gather around on their respective podcasts or radio network or whatever, where we all gather around and break this down and talk about how they're missing this. So this is now a weekly conversation where the NFL dealt with a week or two of backlash. Now they're getting backlash on a weekly basis. So I'm curious to see if anything moves the needle in terms of whether any of it changes as we move forward while we watch it as it moves down into the playoffs because that's where I think that the NFL is really thinking, okay, we have this rule in so that we can get this thing right in the playoffs. So going to be interesting to watch because coaches aren't even bothering with it now at this point because they don't want to waste timeouts. So I'm very intrigued to see how it continues to play out, whether the NFL continues to, you know, if they make any statements or anything like that, because this is going to be something that on a weekly basis, uh, the public turns the pressure up on the NFL just from the fact of, hey, what are we doing if we have this and we're not using it? Evan, the last thing I want to touch on real quick, did you see the first human going sub two hours in the marathon? I did, and I was doing the math on that thinking – this is kind of impossible, right? Because you would have to do like a pace of 
four minutes and 30 something seconds per mile, which is pretty close to a world, right? Cause the world record, like nobody got under four minutes a mile until what the 1950s when Roger Bannister did it. Yeah. Bannister was the first one to do it. So up until about 50, 60 years ago, the thought of running under four miles under four minutes in a mile or a mile under five minutes or whatever was kind of thought to be impossible up until about 60 years. So I just thought about it. Like, was this, was he sprinting the whole time? Because you would need a four minute, 30 something second pace. Okay, cool. Now do that 26 miles in a row. I, so how is this a world record, but it's not technically a world record. So Elliot Kipchoge, one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. That is a 433 clip per mile. The 34 uh, Kipchoge is 34 uh, from Kenya. It's not because of, and we'll just kind of, I'll just kind of walk it back here. They've set up this Project 159 where they were trying to get somebody to go sub two hours in the marathon. It's never been done before. And Kipchoge has the official uh, marathon record at like two hours, one minute and change. So almost at two hours flat in terms of the world record. But they had a special course in Vienna. They had rotating groups of pacemakers, Evan, and that's where it's not official is because you had different teams of runners tag in to set the pace for him. I think you had 41 pace setters and they ran in different groups and they ran in a special formation. And there was all this for me as a runner, it was very cool to nerd out on a lot of this stuff because they had a custom pace car uh, that, that they, that they customized an electric car so that it would go exactly the pace. Because when you, if you're just going cruise control on your regular vehicle, it's not exact in terms of what they needed to keep the pace. So they had the special pace car, which projected uh, like a laser line down for the pacers. So like that's the line that you needed to keep for the time. You had the rotating pacers come in. So you had like six or seven guys come in and they would do, you know, a few miles of it. They would fall off. Another group would come in. So that's where it wasn't an official world record because you had the rotating pace setters. The, it was not an open race. It was just Kipchoge and the pace setters running on the course. So a lot of different things went into it to make it not an official world record, but the first time ever that we've seen somebody run sub two hours in the marathon at four minutes and 33 seconds per mile. It's just just remarkable. I was looking into like the things that could get you DQ'd in distance running. And one of them involves drinking water outside of a designated aid station. I can get DQ'd for just drinking water. (laughs) There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that go into it. As I mentioned, the not an open race, they specialized the course. They had the pace car. They had the, the rotating pacers, so a lot of things went into it to not make it a a sanctioned record, but it is the record in terms of no other person has ever gone under two hours in the marathon. Kipchoge did it one hour, 59 minutes, 40 seconds, 4.33 per mile. I cannot imagine running that fast 
for that long. I could run that fast in my day for one mile or, or close to it. Not anywhere near that for what Kipchoge went 26.2 miles at that pace. That's amazing. I could have maybe done under five minutes in a mile when I was like 14. Like I, I definitely couldn't do that now, but if you got to like middle school, me where I was still reasonably active, (laughs) I could maybe do it under five to six minutes, but I don't think I really have much of a chance to do that, but I would have to, he would have to like get like a plaque somewhere where he ran a two ran two hour marathon with an asterisk. It, so it, is it disqualified from being a Guinness world record? Can the Guinness guys call it a record that I don't know. That's a good point. Probably. Yeah. So he, but I don't, I don't know all the circumstances surrounding that, but yeah, I mean, I would think, you know, not sanctioned for, um, for that, but yeah, maybe I, I, I'll, I'll have to look into that when we get done here. I, I'm, I'm curious about that. I know when it comes to the long jump that they say that, well, if the wind goes past X number of miles an hour, it doesn't count as a record eligible jump. So when it comes to things like that, you might have to account for variables like weather. Because if he was if he did that in like Boston or Chicago, it would have been a lot more impressive than a specially designed course where it's just one guy. But the but says the guy who probably if you put him on a track right now, he probably couldn't run a mile in under seven minutes. But <laughs> I I was really impressed because I thought that and like this, is this even possible? Like is this is this a thing? Like uh, that would. It was it was something I nerded out on as I as a runner at I I it was it was uh it was two two a.m. Eastern time was when he ran it because he was running it over in Vienna, and so I I watched every second of it, loved it. Kipchoge goes under two hours in the mile uh, in the marathon, excuse me, four thirty three a mile, uh one hour fifty nine minutes forty seconds for his marathon time sets the record, the only. No other human being has gone under two hours in a marathon. So hats off to Kipchoge. Uh, Evan, it's been a full show, man. We, we we went through a lot. I think that we've covered almost everything. I think the I the only thing we haven't covered yet, and it's coming next week, guys, we swear, we promise, because the NBA season will not have started by then, is our NBA season, season preview oh, big time. that is coming next, that is coming next week. We, we promise. Yes, indeed. NBA NBA preview is coming up next week. The the NBA season starts uh, in just just about a week, a week and a half here. Uh, there are basketball games on October twenty second, I believe, October twenty third. So the season opens up. We will have the we will have our preview for that next week. But uh, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's episode of the From the Booth podcast. Uh, as always, give us a follow on Twitter at from the booth pod, uh, head over to Apple podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, uh, iHeartMedia, iHeartRadio, wherever you find your podcasts, that's where you can find us. So head on over to those mediums, find us, uh, subscribe to the show, uh, on Apple podcasts, give us a five-star rating, drop us a comment about how you enjoy the show. That helps us out. We'd really appreciate that. We thank, uh, we thank 
everyone who has rated so far and who has commented so far. We really appreciate that. So head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, drop us a comment, subscribe to the pod on your various uh, various platforms, follow us on Twitter at From the Booth Podcast, and that's going to do it for us here for another week on the pod. Uh, special thanks to Evan Eichen, my co-host as always. Evan, we appreciate it. Thanks to Tony Huynh, our guy for the po- the uh, awesome artwork, our logo. We thank him every week for being able to come up with that for us as we got the podcast started. Check him out on Twitter at underscore Tony Huynh. That's at underscore T-O-N-Y-H-U-Y-N-H. Great graphic designer. We appreciate his help as well. For Evan Eichen, I'm Cody Clark saying good riddance for this weekend. Right back here next week to preview the upcoming NBA season here on the From the Booth podcast.